Well, I'm delighted to say that uh, joining me on the Godcast today is Rob Walker. Now, Rob is uh, Channel 4 and BBC Sports broadcaster with over 20 years of screen experience in the TV industry. Uh, Rob is known for his unparalleled enthusiasm for sport with lots of energy. And um, it's, uh, it's really great to get you on the Godcast, Rob. How are you doing? Yeah, very good, Alex. Uh, very, very good morning to you. It's a, a gorgeous day and, yeah, you, you caught me at a good time. I'm, I'm going for a, a long run when we've done this, get out in that beautiful Gloucestershire fresh air, but quite nice to, to spend half an hour or something just sort of reflecting on life and, and chewing the fat. So, so you say you're down in Gloucestershire. Where, where is home, Rob? I live in a very, very small village just outside Sirencester. Uh, I live in the Cotswolds. I mean, before I moved here, I kind of had a vague idea where the Cotswolds was. Basically, if you're driving from London to Cardiff on the M4, you get halfway down and there's two turnoffs for Swindon. If you come off at the first one and drive north for about half an hour, then you're in the Cotswolds. So, yeah, I, I live in a very, very small village. Um, there's no pub. Uh, there's a part-time post office uh, and there's yeah just a lot of green fields around and it's, yeah, it's a very very beautiful place to live it's very peaceful it's very quiet it's exactly what I want to have around me when I when I come back from long trips yeah we, we, we love living here so we're very fortunate wonderful sounds sounds idyllic so so let's get down to business Rob we're, we're going to talk about your career and stuff in a bit but um, let's start with the faith stuff. Let's um, let's crack on with that. When when you agreed to do the Godcast, you you said you weren't religious, but you were quite spiritual. So, Rob, what what separates your spirituality from from faith, as it were? What would you say about that? I don't know really. I've never thought about it. I mean, I like I like the principles upon which religion are based. I love, I like the concept of looking out for your fellow man. And I'm, I'm a big believer in, I'm a big believer in compassion. And I'm a big believer in gratitude for where you are on the food chain. Um, I have been fortunate enough to spend a lot of time in East Africa. And I think some of the communities I've been in and some of the places I've been, uh, I've in part rarely witnessed more intense areas of poverty. However, Africa is so much more, you know, that, that, that's a one dimensional view of the continent. But I've been to church services over there just in the course of being around and, and being respectful to local communities. And I've seen the joy and the hope that religion gives people in certain communities there where otherwise they wouldn't have much hope. So I'm quite respectful of that, but yeah, I, I'd say, I'm quite happy. Sorry, my phone. I'll turn my phone on silent. I'd say I'm. Sorry. I'd say I'm quite. I'm quite comfortable with with where I am. I I, I like the principles of looking after other people. Uh, I'm not someone who goes to church or necessarily believes in a god, um, but I just believe in being nice to other people and. You know, so I, I don't I don't worry about what I think about it. That's those are my principles and that's how I live my life. Yeah. It's interesting what you said about Africa because you know, in, in the world of Christendom, it is one of the places where church is growing 
you know, and, and church communities are growing in, in African villages and, and townships. Why do you think that might be, Rob? Have you got a, got a thought behind that? Yeah, because I think life, there's an emerging middle class in many African countries. I think we need to, we need to say that right at the beginning. I'm, I'm a really passionate defender of the African nations because I still think they're grossly misrepresented. The entire continent is uh, on so many fronts, you know, and, and there's great ingenuity, there's great engineering, there's inventiveness, um, as well as a sheer zest for life and a joy. And, a, and, an, and, and so, so many vivid colours, you know, if you go around Uganda, it's, I've never seen greens and oranges like it, you know, the dust, the dusty roads, you go, go for a run down there in, in some of the rural communities outside places like Ginger. They're absolutely beautiful and incredibly fertile. But all that said, life is very, very hard uh, in a way that certain people from the Western world would have no concept of in certain areas in Africa. So it makes total sense to me that something that's free and very uplifting and very positive and a cornerstone of a community or an environment, uh, that, that, that's going to take off. And if that's religion, then it makes total sense because it's a moment when entire communities can come together and they still have a lot of traditional values. You'll see people dressed up really smartly in, in beautiful, brightly coloured clothing, men and women, uh, on a Sunday morning when, when you're going about your business in, in rural areas. You, you'll see them all up getting ready and to, to go to church. And, and that's how they start their Sunday. And, and some of them might be lucky enough to have the whole of Sunday off or maybe just a Sunday morning, but the, you know, it's just, it's entwined in the culture, the, the music and the singing and the choirs. So to me, uh, having spent a lot of time in non-COVID times in East Africa, it seems perfectly logical to me that the concept of going to church has, has taken off uh, there, if indeed it has, which, which, which I'm sure it has, if you say it has. Were, were you, uh, were you ever part of a church, Rob, as a young guy? We, was it part of church, uh, a way of growing up for you or not? Not really. I mean, I, I, I mean, yeah, I went to church when I was at school because, uh, because I, you know, I had to. Um, but like I said to you, look, I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm not a religious man, but I like the principles that religion is based on. Um, so, you know, I suppose some of that might, might have rubbed off along, along the way. I, I did RE as an A level. Um, I like the subject and I like the stories in the mm. Bible. I was, I was only ever really good at uh, or competent academically at, at subjects that involve books. Uh, I did English and, uh, and I did drama and I did, and I did RE and then did English and drama as a degree uh, at Exeter. So, um, yeah, look, I mean, I'm, I'm very relaxed about it, uh, but I'm, I just believe in being compassionate and, and I, I wholeheartedly believe in having a gratitude for where you are on the food chain, but that gratitude and that compassion is not linked to religion. No, <clears throat> but uh, I suppose uh, with spirituality, and, and, and I know you're a keen runner, I suppose uh, mental health and well-being is is uh, is key to you, is it, and to, to others? Oh, healthy body is a healthy mind. And I think, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, life been so hard for so many people and I'm very very lucky that I'm not one of them over the last 15 months perhaps one of the perhaps one of the most important things to come out of lockdown 
is that it's reminded all of us that the most important things in life are those to which you cannot assign a monetary value. I really missed hugging my parents, for instance. It's not something I ever thought about because we're a really tactile family. So you take that for granted. And I remember the first time I met mum and dad uh, for an outdoor walk under all the usual allowable rules. It was so weird to get out of the car and not be able to hug them. I think as a runner and as someone who lives in a, in a rural area, I've always enjoyed looking at the wildlife and the birds of prey with some lovely red kites around here. But the wildlife just exploded in lockdown one. So whilst I had some level of appreciation of the environment in which I lived and walked uh, and ran, that grew enormously during that first lockdown. And, and may, maybe, maybe that's one positive we can all take. We all talk more to our neighbours. I was talking specifically about that first lockdown where you went out and every day it was like it was Christmas Day. There was not a soul out there. Um, and I think we really appreciated our, our local environment. Those of us fortunate enough to live in, in, a, in a rural setting where we have got a lot of space and, and a lot of farmland around us. So, yeah, I think, I think it's reminded everyone of the, the value of the simplicity of, you know, um, the principles of, on which we, we live. And, and, and it is as basic as we want to hug each other we want to be around each other. We want to hear voices. We want to hear laughter and, and interact with each other. You know, it's, I mean, this is okay. It's serving a purpose because we're on Zoom. Um, but there's nothing like face-to-face -face contact. I'm quite old-fashioned like that. I use technology when I have to. But I'm, I still write all my notes when I commentate by hand. I don't do it on a, on a computer. Um, we are social creatures, and we've got to get back to that as, as soon as possible. I just, yeah. just can't wait to... To stand around in a pub and just hear people laughing and seeing people hug each other and having a nice time, you know, we we're, we're slowly getting back to that. But the sooner that process is completed, the better. I can, I can only concur. I've actually just come from school, Rob, where I've conducted my first school assembly physically with a, an, an audience in 15 or 16 months. I was actually quite emotional. It was just wonderful to see kids and and see the you know something other than zoom and uh, it was wonderful so and, and obviously you're a, you're a, you're a good runner and you've got a, a, an interest in athletics but and and I've been saying to my parishioners about just get out go and walk in the park you know you don't have to be an athlete do you to 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 find some things joyful i mean they're like you say at the moment the nature is off the scale at the moment oh it's brilliant i mean as I said to you earlier, you know, a healthy body is a healthy mind. And I, I'm, I'm built very differently to, to my wife. I'm six foot three and 11 stone. And my wife's a, a lovely, uh, curvy woman. As, as my grand would have said, she's a fine, big woman. My, my grand never, never lived long enough to, to meet my wife. But um, yeah, Becky, Becky does not, is not built necessarily for, for going out and, and running long distances. But she's got into cycling and, and she's, she's done the couch to 5K thing over lockdown and, and I, I, I've said to her, I, it doesn't matter what shape someone is, you know, skinny people are not gonna be out there going, oh, look at them trying to run when they're, you know, when, when they weigh X, Y, or Z, no one cares. 
your running is is your personal journey and and you know i mean that couch to 5k concept is really good because i think what becky was explaining to me was you know you do a couple of minutes like literally i mean it's walking pace but you're jogging motion that's fine and then you stop for a bit and you get going and one day you you've run for three minutes out of 15 and then the next day you've done five and the next day you've done seven and mighty oaks out of acorns to grow so I, I think it's been brilliant to see so many different people of different shapes and sizes out exercising their local environment because yeah i suppose a lot of people have had worries and concerns and there is no well i mean for you of course the, the, this 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 sort of comfort would come from a church for people who are not religious uh just being outdoors we we live in a beautiful country mm. uh with with trees and birds and and yes, an, an increase in animals around. Um, just being outdoors gives you a different perspective on on what's going on. And and if you prefer to, I've never ever run with music. I prefer to be immersed in my local environment, apart from a safety perspective. But I want to be able to hear cars coming up behind me. Um, I just I just want to hear the birds and and look at the sky and and just have clear thoughts, you know, which which comes to you when you're in motion. I don't know if you like exercise it's life seems to make sense when you're physically moving i'm certainly in that bracket yeah thanks rob let's just uh let's talk about your career in media a little bit was well, how did it all begin for you rob was uh was it was there a lucky break involved or was this uh pure uh rob walker genius that got you to on 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 the ladder of the media world how did it happen for you no oh, there's there's no genius in this room, I can assure you. Um, just a, a bit of a bit of determination and and a lot of luck and, and some hard work. Uh, well, we, we talked a lot about the running. Um, I've always been into into running ever since I was a child, and my mum uh, woke me up so I could watch Seb Cohen and Steve Cram race head to head in the in the 1500 meter final in the LA Olympics in 1984. And I think as a child, you know, when you have those funny treats or moments where you go to bed early and you get woken up to what feels to you at the time, like it's the middle of the night, so you can watch a sporting event, you never, ever forget that. Moments like that are indelibly etched uh, in, in, in darkest recesses of your mind. I can even remember, we, my mum and dad haven't lived in that house for a long time, but I can even remember where the TV was in relation to the, to the sofa, and the little chair I sat on, I had a little dog chair uh, with fluffy ears. My son sits on it now when he goes to see a nanny and granddad. Anyway, I sat on this chair and, well, they, they just looked like gods to me. Uh, just just these, these mythical men uh, running at speeds I could only dream of. And I watched the race and, and Seb Coe successfully defended his Olympic title. Steve Cram got the silver the year after winning the inaugural World Athletics Championship gold in Helsinki in 83. And I said to my mum and dad sometime around, and I don't know that night or the next day, oh, one day I'm going to run the 1500 metres for Great Britain in the Olympic Games, or if not, I'm going to be the man in the stadium talking about it. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I woke up every day of my life after that, um, fixated with that goal, but it was always there or thereabouts. And I, I continued to, to fall in love with running 
and learn more about it. I loved writing, I loved reading, and I loved all other sports. So I suppose without consciously thinking that I wanted to become an athletics commentator, uh, my life began to take me in that direction. And, and then in 1985, I watched the Dennis Taylor, Steve Davis, uh, World Snooker Championship final, the, the Black Ball, the iconic night. And so I started to get into snooker as well. Uh, I drifted away from snooker as I focused more on running in my teenage years. And then I, I came back to snooker purely by accident uh, in 2007. So snooker has, has, has gone on to become a, a huge part of my working and, and personal life to, to the same extent as running, actually. And there's not, look, there's no shortcut in our industry. I'm not a huge name, but I am very lucky that I've made a, a good living for my wife and son and I uh, working on television for more than 20 years. And I'm incredibly grateful for that and i know i'm very fortunate to be in that position but when you're talking to to kids trying to get into the industry boys boys and girls it's so, it's so hard to give them a map because there just isn't one it's such a random precarious uh weird way to make a living that there isn't the right way or the wrong way there's the way that works for that individual and some of your success inherently linked to your personality and how well you've managed to integrate uh, into the sport that you're trying to, to break into. Yes, you've got to be able to do the job and there has to be some ability there. And there does, have, there does have to be an element of luck as well. But in that regard, I'm, I've obviously had lucky breaks. I'd never deny that. But I also think, as my dad always told me when I was a kid, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Um, and maybe that's the principle thing that you need to pass on to kids trying to get into television that you've really really got to want it and and you've got to be prepared to work because it can take a very very long time to, yeah. to get where you want to go Rob you you'd said something though I found quite interesting you said that it you told the students and things that it's quite a precarious industry but am I right in saying that you you actually worked for the BBC were you contracted to the BBC and then you you you're, you're freelance now is that correct yeah, I worked for, yes, I, I worked for two different ITV regions. I worked for ITV West Country uh, around about 1999 to the, to the back end of 2000, based in Plymouth. And then I worked for another ITV region uh, in Bristol covering ITV. It was called HTV West, but it wasn't in Wales. It was, it was in Bristol covering the sort of, you know, the, 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 the Bristol Bath lost the Swindon area and then I had a staff job at the BBC for three and a half years from 2002 to towards the end of 2006 and I've been freelance and, and self-employed for, for 15 years since and uh, now I mean it's hard to even remember what it was like to be a staff member I've been you know effectively a one-man band for so long um, I've got used to it and as my dad said to me that people who work for themselves almost become unemployable after a short amount of time because not because they think they know it all we don't and whoever would know it all uh, certainly not the person who thinks they do but you, you're so used to running your own schedule in conjunction with you've actually got to put food on the table uh, I think it would be very difficult to go back to a, a restricted system where somebody else is 
dictating what you do. I think once you've tasted that freedom, if it's going okay for you, such would, um, it'd be very, very hard to, to, hand that, to hand that freedom and power back to someone else. It would have to be an inordinate amount of money. And even then, I, I'm not sure I would. Um, you know, there are, there, are, there, are, there are times where, you know, you, your money drops a lot because you're really busy at certain periods and not so busy at others, but you just got to get good at managing that and you accept the fact that you can't have it all. Uh, if you want the freedom, you've got to accept the fact that there's an uncertainty that comes with that and, and that, that, that's how I make my living. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, so uh, would you would you encourage students to take that? I mean, at, at the time for you, Rob, was it was it quite daunting going solo, as it were, or were you were you confident enough in your own ability by that stage to think, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna put the hours in, I'm gonna put the I've done the hard yards, and now I'm gonna go and make it happen. Now, what what would you say to students now? I think it's quite good if you. Could can do a couple of years somewhere as a staff member because you need contacts in order to make a good living as a freelancer. It's not impossible to start off as a kid with no contact and build them as you go. But I have seen people who've done that and it's really tough for them when, they, when they're starting out. Mm. I had a foot up on that ladder because I'd already worked with a lot of people who went on to employ me in a freelance capacity. So they already knew enough about me that they trusted my work ethic. They took a bit of a punt as to whether or not I was going to be a decent broadcaster or not. But to answer, so you've got to go for it. But I would say if they, if, if kids can start off in a framework, they'll learn a great deal in a short space of time and then they could go freelance. But, you know, if you haven't got that option and the staff job that you seek isn't available, then it's not impossible starting on the outside as a kid. But you're going to have to accept the fact that unless somebody waves a magic wand, it's, it's going to take a while. Mm. Uh, to answer the other bit of your question, it was an absolute no-brainer, uh, not in any way connected to my, you know, to some arrogance to assume I was going to be able to make a good living. It was more of a case of I'm not married at the moment. I wasn't even going out with anyone at that time. That was two years before I met my wife. I had nobody reliant on me. The only person I had to provide for was me. I had been very sensible with my money. I had a flat in Acton in, in West London. So I thought, right, okay, I'm going through the scales of what I'm risking here. The worst, worst case scenario is that I'm completely rubbish at this and I have to go back to the BBC and ask if they could give me some freelance shifts. I would hope, as I rationaled it at the time, well, I could rent my flat out. I don't think I'm going to be forced to sell it. I wouldn't like giving up the flat because it was, I was, you know, I'd worked hard to, to get it. And it was a nice place to live. And then I thought, well, okay, I can rent out a room. If things are tight, if things are okay, I can swing by. I don't spend much money on many things anyway. Um, so I just, to me, it's a no brainer because you're much better off in life uh, finding out your limitations than always being in that coulda, woulda, shoulda bracket. I, I, I decided at the time, as I told you, I was totally single then. I decided what kind of father do I want to be? I always wanted to have a son. I mean, I know that's, I'm sure I would have loved it if I'd had a daughter, but I was desperate to have a son. Uh, I, I really had a desire to be a father from a very 
young age. <laughs> Not so young that I became a dad as a teenager, but I was quite late actually when, when, when Arthur was born. But because I had such a good relationship with my parents and had so much to be grateful for from, from both of them, I just wanted the chance to have this great friendship with my son that, that, that I've enjoyed for so many years with my dad. So I sat there and thought, what kind of dad do I want to be? You know, if I'm scratching around in 20 years time and I have a son who's 12 or 13 and I'm a little bit bitter about opportunities that didn't come my way, what's my son gonna say? Well, why didn't you do something about it? Why didn't you go and try? And I thought I want to be the kind of father where if I have a, an, a, a goal that I, did, that I don't achieve, I can look my son square in the eye and say, I tried my damnedest to make it happen. It wasn't meant to be, but I tried. I, I upturned every stone possible in my quest to make it happen. So I sleep well at night because I tried. So that's how I've always approached life. I, I think you're much better off finding out your limitations than, than not being able to look that boy in the eye and say, I don't know why that didn't happen because I didn't try hard enough. So simple. <clears throat> yeah, and a great a great life lesson for many people as well, Rob, I think, definitely. Um, can we talk about some of those uh, fantastic sporting events that you, you're involved with? Let's start with the indoor stuff, Rob. I mean, uh, I've seen you on the, the snooker at the Crucible, and I interviewed Leo Scullion, who I'm sure you know well, a few uh, weeks ago. He, he has the best viewing point in the house, but you're not far off. Um, tell, tell us about um, the, the wonderful arena of the Crucible in those two weeks. There is nowhere like the Crucible. Uh, I love Leo, by the way. I've had some great conversations with, with Leo. I had the privilege of introducing him as the, the referee for the World Championship final. I'm sure you spoke to him at great length about that. Um, that was really emotional for him. His wife was in the crowd because he, he'd done so well to, to battle back from cancer. And he's such a proud family man as well. He's so, so proud of his, his daughter. He's so, so clever. I can't remember what she's qualified in, but she's really high up. Uh, I think it's something very academic, but she's brilliant anyway. Uh, yeah, the Crucible's really special because of the shape of the arena. When you go out there, the noise reverberates off, off all sides. It's such a special place to, to broadcast. And also it's the World Championship, so it's the climax of the whole season. But I've, I've got to say to you, the snooker people are some of the, some of the best men and women, I know it's the men who play mostly. Uh, we've got some fantastic uh, female staff backstage, uh, some, some great characters. Snooker has been so good to, 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 to me and my family for nearly 15 years. I, I can't believe what a big part of my life Snooker has become. They're such amazing people. Almost everyone has their own sort of idiosyncrasies, but they're such, I, I cannot tell you, like, the, the best way to describe snooker people, that they are salt of the earth. I mean, you, whenever you go stay in a hotel, where, where we as a sport fill the hotel, especially uh, in lockdown, when, when we've all been in the same place, as opposed to dotted around in various B&Bs and, and hotels and, and travel lodges and so on. Over the last year, we've all been in the same hotels together. So we spent more time interacting with each other socially than, than we ever have done in the past. And one of the things I set a great store by 
which I'm sure you do as well. It doesn't matter whether you're religious or not. Everybody needs to say please and thank you, excuse me, pardon me. And when we've been in these hotels, some of these guys don't come from privileged backgrounds. Let's put it that way. You're talking about very humble, down-to-earth men. Every single one of them, when we've gone into these breakfast rooms, sometimes you have to sit on separate tables. So a few times I've sat on my own and I've just watched people milling about, talking to the waitresses and the waiters and so on. Every single person connected with our tour says please and thank you and excuse me, pardon me, when they're asking those serving them or working at the hotels they're staying at to, to help them with something. That tells you the mark of the sport we're involved in. Many of these guys have enabled them, their ability and their dedication to their sport as it has opened up new doors for themselves and their wives and their children. I think there's something so admirable in that and there's such a humility that accompanies the snooker tour um i'm really really proud to, to be a part of that and to go back to your initial question yeah look there, there is nowhere like the crucible it's it's steeped in history yes it's a small venue great atmosphere it's a bit, bit quirky backstage but that's why we love going there um yeah. you know because it's got four decades of Started there in 1977. Think about all the great players who've won it there. Mm -hmm. Alex Higgins, Steve Davis, yeah. Ray Reardon won it there, won one of his six. Um, you know, the, the Hendry era, Mark Williams winning three, John Higgins winning four, Ronnie, you know, one shy of, of Stephen still on six, and Mark Selby making it four this year with a huge roar. Um, they're very, very special people, the, the, the snooker community, and I am so privileged to have been welcomed in in the manner in which I have been mm. since I started in, in December 2007. They're, they're great people. It's, it's really nice to hear. I've not, I've not managed to get uh, one of the top snooker players on yet, but, but it, just listening to what you were saying there, I've, I've interviewed quite a lot of footballers, and do you know what, Rob? I've actually found the same with them as well. I think I don't know if it's because they're... They come from their, their roots are quite working class, and um, you know they 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 seem to really appreciate what they have. Um, you know the media sometimes portrays it in a different way, but the people that I've interviewed certainly seem have been very gracious and and uh, very giving of their time and very thankful for what they've got. So it's nice to hear that about the snooker fraternity as well. What about darts? How's that different? Because that is just extraordinary, isn't it? That that people turn out in their huge numbers to watch what effectively is tiny little arrows going into a board, but it's extraordinary. Yeah, darts is amazing, isn't it? Because you, you I mean, for someone who fell in love with sport through running, you couldn't get anything more diametrically opposed because it's, you know, it's not, those guys don't have to be able to run a marathon, but darts is nuts because how can something that, involves so such little physical movement be so captivating on television and yet it is mm. i'm looking at you on the zoom on a split screen and that is that is the that is part of the reason why darts works so well on tv one half is looking at the board where he's going to the, the, the man and a woman's going to hit and the other half you're looking at their face you know contorted in stress and agony with thousands mm. of people screaming and shouting I should point out, I've never done the PDC darts, 
I only ever was privileged enough to do the BDO, which is more like the the entry level. Um, it was still quite, still quite raw. I was the reporter uh, for the BBC. Oh yeah, it was brilliant. Oh, unbelievable atmosphere. Just just a different. I mean, some people say some those involved in the sport are very particular about whether they're BBC professional darts or, or whether they're BDO, mm. the British darts, uh, which which doesn't exist anymore, sadly. Uh, but all those years at Lakeside were absolutely incredible. I think I did about seven or eight for the BBC. Colin Murray was the presenter and I was the reporter. And then the contract went to Channel 4. And then I presented, I was the main the, the, the main presenter on that for two years. Similar principle in terms of why it's so enjoyable, as is the case with snooker. All those guys were so nice to deal with. And the, 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 the female players as well, you know, Lisa Ashton, Fallon Sherrick was coming through. Uh, she attained great notoriety when, uh, when when she beat one of the guys. She even got, I think she got a tweet or a text or something from Billie Jean King. That was when she'd gone over to the PDC. But they were just such nice men and women to deal with. Great personalities. I mean, some of them were doing very humble jobs and they became famous for one week a year at Lakeside and, and it was brilliant. And they took it for what it was and, you know, you their money wisely some of them i think and, and went back to their jobs with, with real pride and, and then um, got on with the rest of their year but yeah they were they were great years at lakeside absolutely incredible uh, uh sadly that that era has come to a close but all good things come to an end don't they so yeah so very very happy memories of, of working on darts for, for the best part of the decade rob you you certainly don't need a jobbing vicar to flatter you but but i think what i really like about you as a as a commentator is your ability to you know you know su such as the crucible is to bring the atmosphere into into the home um which is not easy you know because it's indoors and we're all sat there on our sofas and and i was watching your commentary um of ben ainsley winning the his sailing gold medal i, I can't i think it was probably 2016 but there was a bit you're there bobbing away in the water and uh you know, you actually really brought across the importance of this and the significance of it and the tension of it. And I thought, and I just thought to myself, it's a real skill, this. is a real craft of, at work here. And, um, you know, I, I don't really know what the question is. It's probably more of, um, you know, just thanks for doing uh, it. Because it's, wonder, it's wonderful to watch. No, that's very kind of you to say that. The, the, the two times I covered Ben was uh, Beijing in 2008, and then the other one you might be referring to is 2012, yeah. when he became the success, the most successful Olympic sailor in history. That's the one. Um, winning winning an Olympic contest against a Danish guy. Um, yeah, it's funny. I mean, you, you, I, I think a lot of broadcasting is instinctive um, because there's nothing like being live. Recorded stuff's all right. But you, if you talk to most broadcasters and to someone who's not in the industry, you might think that's a bit weird that people would prefer, you would imagine some perhaps that people would prefer a recorded context because they can start again if they make a mistake. But so many broadcasters, myself included, are the other way around. When something's live, it sounds weird because you might think that the pressure is increased because you have to deliver in that moment. Whatever you say is, has gone out already. But there is a simplicity to that and there's an honesty to that and you just react to what you see. It's happening, so you say what you see. Um, 
of course you you try and get better year upon year but some of that is just so instinctive you it's not like you don't sit there and go oh how am i going to try and make myself sound clever you just look at what's happening and you say something it just comes out um and listen don't get me wrong you know I, I'm, I'm not massive on social media i only really go on social media because i i it's sort of expected if you're a broadcaster but i can pick it up or put it down i'm not obsessed by that at all and there'll be people on there you get all sorts of messages people saying you're a, you're a so-and-so words i couldn't possibly use in front of a man of the cloth um you get all sorts of stuff written about you online you've got to ignore it all that's easier uh if you're older like me because people like you and i we didn't grow up with social media uh, so therefore, we realise that, you know, unless someone's going to knock on your front door and start saying those things, it doesn't matter. You're never going to meet them. You're never going to see them. Who cares? As long as the people you're working for are happy with what you're delivering and, and you're trying to do justice to the great dedication that the sportsmen and women have already produced to get to the moment that you're talking about, um, it doesn't matter about what someone thinks or you're never going to meet. You have to have that level of a thick skin so you know not everybody likes the, 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 the style i've got and i quite often get slagged off for being too cheesy on the snooker but it is what it is the, the most important people are the athletes you're talking about and obviously the people who are paying you to to say what you say um but i just think it's it's instinctive and i i also think you've got a you've got to give of your own personal energy when you're talking on television about a sporting event because you should always have it it's not like you don't walk down the stairs every day going i'm so lucky to be me it's not like that quite but when you're working there should there is no excuse for a broadcaster a sports broadcaster especially there's no excuse for that man or woman to ever forget or take for granted the lucky position they're in to be paid to talk about an event that they would probably buy a ticket for if they were not in that profession. And that is the level of energy and excitement that you need to bring to that event to, to kind of, to pay that back in, in some way, yeah. if that sort of makes sense. It does. Yeah. And you were talking about athletes, uh, Rob, I, I love athletics. My dad was a, an athlete. He's been dead for many years. He, he ran for Belgrave Harriers, but um, he I remember him taking me as a boy to oh, some ridiculously long drive just to see Seb Coe in kind of his first run of the year. It wasn't a big event, and fortunately I met Seb Coe, and uh, it's a real honour. But who who who's the greatest athlete of them all, Rob? It, you know, there's so many to choose from. Uh, I'm sure Daley, Daley Thompson will still claim it's him. But, you know, who, who are the really greats when, that come to your mind when you think of the very best athletes? Very quickly, I can come up with the answer to that question. Haile Gabriel-Selassie, the tiny Ethiopian who won uh, the Olympic title twice over 10,000 metres, was a four-time uh, world champion at, at, at 10,000 metres. He, he won the golds in Atlanta and Sydney. If someone's not even interested in athletics, get them to look up Gabriel Selassie against Paul Turgat, his great rival from Kenya, who's also a, an absolute gem of a human being. 
uh, their finish in Sydney was so close. Every time you watch that race, you think Turgat's going to win, even though it's over 20 years ago. I've had the privilege of, of, of working with Haile. He set up a, a race in, in Ethiopia called the Great Ethiopian Run in conjunction with the Great Run Company. We do the Great North Run. Um, yeah, Brent, Brendan Foster's company, now run by his son, Paul. Um, and Haile wanted to bring uh, a mass participation race to the land of runners to Ethiopia. And he needed a lot of help with the practicalities and the logistics early on. And uh, for nearly 10 years, I went over and covered the great Ethiopian run every year. And you've never seen anything like it. It's just like a, an absolute carnival. And Haile was a real game changer because aside from the four world titles, over 10, uh, the two Olympic titles, the guys range was absolutely incredible at the world indoors in 1999 he won the 1500 meters in what is still the championship record something like 333 which is an amazing time for a 10,000 meter to run runner to produce indoors when, when the indoor track is is only 200 meters won the 3000 as well um successfully defended the olympic title in in 2000 then he steps up to the marathon and the half marathon uh becomes the first man in history to break um 204, he ran 203.59 in Berlin. Um, but it's it's more the manner in which he conducts himself in his own country that I think for me marks him out as the greatest of all time. Because the man physically is tiny. Uh, I've picked him up many years ago, I was joking around when I, when I first went over there in 03, he was, he was still doing some, some track work. And myself and another couple of team members uh, from Ethiopia, we were larking around. I, pick, I could have picked him up in one arm, and I'm, I'm only 11 stone myself. Physically, the man is tiny. But you know what? When he walks into a room, there is a reverence, there is a grace, and there is an incredible presence to him. Uh, he's got this huge chest. He's basically like lungs on legs. He's very, uh, got a very straight back, massive chest. Probably, yeah, probably only weighs seven stone, five foot two, if that. But my gosh, when he walks in a room, you know he's there. And he's done so much for his country, set up so many businesses. And yeah, of course, he needs to make a living. So he's taken some profit from those companies, but not loads. Mm -hmm. And he came up with this concept that 50% of his workforce needed to be female because he was aware of how much he's revered in his country. He's aware of how much of an ambassador he is for his country. And previously, I think there had been some quite old fashioned views as to where women are placed in Ethiopian society. Mm. And he thought that if he decided and advertised that he would have a 50% female workforce, it might begin to change the way women were viewed in his own country. And that's just, just the tip of the iceberg of the things he's done. So without any question that, that the human being, if you're looking at sort of hero figures or heroine figures, um, there's two people who would be right at the top, and, uh, and, and that's my dad and Haile Gabriel Selassie, and, and my mum in, in, in a very different way. But if you're talking about heroes specifically, yeah. Haile's the main man alongside my dad. He, he sounds, obviously I'm aware of him, but he sounds, he sounds inspiring stuff, Rob. Hey, Rob, it's been really great great talking to you about sport and your career and um, what's next up for you are you involved with the olympics this year or what's the position with yeah casting there? well i mean therein lies the precarious nature of, of of how 
of how people like me make a living. Uh, it's all or nothing. Um, in theory, I'm, I'm supposed to be flying out to Tokyo on the 16th of July, um, but I still haven't had my flight or hotel details. I've signed my contract and all that, but I haven't had my flight or, or, or details through. I think it probably will get over the line, but I think it's going to be tight because if it wasn't, I'd already have all those documents. Mm. Most, most Olympics, you receive that information in about February. Um, so, yeah, in, in theory, uh, if all goes well, I'll be commentating on the boxing and the athletics for, um, the, for the, the world broadcast. So, for instance, with the athletics, my commentary will be live in the Caribbean, in the English-speaking African countries, India and New Zealand. And then I'll come home, um, hopefully do a, a snooker event for ITV. That's waiting to be finalised. And then I'll do the Paralympics for Channel 4. And then I'll have a rest. Exciting times. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm hopeful. I'd lo I love the Olympics. I, lo I, lo I love all sport, but I love the Olympics. They're really wonderful. And, and uh, yeah, well, I hope you, you get out there safely. And, uh, Rob, it's been a real, real pleasure to get you on the Godcast. Thanks so much for coming on. And uh, wish you well for the rest of the year. Keep smiling. And, and you're, you're such a positivity about you that uh, exudes from you. So, so thank you for your time and sharing some of your comments and, and thoughts. And uh, we have one, I have one final question, Rob. I ask it to as many people as I can. Have you ever been to Burnley? This is where we're coming from this morning. No, I spent quite a lot of time up north, but uh, I've never, no, I've never been to Burnley. Um, I've been to Bury. I covered the bowls in the Commonwealth Games in 2002. So I've been to Bury and Gig Lane, such as it was. Uh, no, I've never, I've never been to Burnley. I can't say that I have, but I'll have to. Well, we, I, are you inviting me for a pint at some point? Well, I'll take you for a pint anytime, Rob. Yeah, and we, we do have a small athletics club here, and uh, we've got some nice hills that you could run up. Um, but uh, yeah, if you're ever up this way, then give us a shout, and uh, I'll, uh, I'll show you. I'll show you. Burnley's got its own brewery, More Houses Brewery, which is a, which is a very well-known, popular brewery around here. So I'll take you for a pint. Oh, that sounds good. I, I love Northern. My wife's a Northerner. Northerners don't take any um, don't take any rubbish, and they 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 make very good wives. I've got to say. I can I can concur. They do. <laughs> God yeah, bless. cool. Look, it's been no no worries. I, I've I've really I've really enjoyed it. It's nice to uh, yeah, it's nice to sort of I don't know. Oh, take a moment to to talk about your principles or whatever. And um, if you if you know anyone, I mean, look you can get in touch with far higher profile people like me but it's a it's, it's a ridiculous industry um you know if you do come across any kids any boys or girls young men and women who are interested i'm always when i've got the time i'm always happy uh, to chat and, and try and give a, a little bit of guidance because um there aren't enough people who, who do that so i i quite often speak in schools if i've made my money for the year I never ask schools to, to pay me or colleges or whatever. So, um, yeah, if there's any any groups you come across and they want to pick someone's brains who's, who's been in the industry a while, then, yeah, get in touch. I can think of people already, Robert. I might just take you up on that. Pleasure. Good afternoon and God bless. See you soon. Bye-bye. Yeah, cheers. Bye. Bye.